Book Two, Chapter Eight of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Prayed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. Lady Bridget McKeith had been married about a year and a quarter. Winter was now merging into spring, but it was not a bounteous spring. That drear spectre of drought hung over the Never Never Land. Lady Bridget stood by the railing of the veranda at Moongar, looking out for two expected arrivals at the head station, that of her husband, who had been camping out after cattle, and of the mailman, colloquially Harry the Blower, who this week was to bring an English mail. Perhaps the last arrival seemed to her at the moment most important of the two. The bushwife had long since begun to feel a sort of homesickness for English news. Yet, had you asked her, she would have told you that barbarism still had a greater hold than civilization. There did not, however, appear to be much of the barbarian about Lady Bridget. She still looked like an old picture in the high-waisted tea-gown of limp yellow silk that she had put on early for dinner, and she still trailed wisps of old lace round her slender shoulders. There was the same twizzle of curly hair, like yellow-brown spun glass or filaments of burnished copper, which was shining now in the westering sun. The finely modelled brows and shadowy eyes were as beautiful as when Colin McKeith had first beheld his goddess stepping on to Australian earth. But for all that, a change had taken place in her, a different one from the indefinable yet significant change which is felt in almost every woman after marriage. There is usually in the young wife's face an expression of fulfilment, of deepened experience, a certain settled, satisfied look. And this was what was lacking in Lady Bridget's face. The restless soul within seemed to be peering out through hungry eyes. She could see nothing human from the veranda except the blue-smocked figure of Fo Wang, the Chinaman, at work in his vegetable garden by the lagoon. There was one large waterhole and a succession of small ones connected by watercourses, now dry, and meandering from a gully which on the eastern side broke the hill against which Mungar Head Station was built. The straggling gum forest, interspersed with patches of sandalwood and mulga that backed the head station stopped short at the gully and beyond stretched wolds of melancholy gidia scrub looking up from the end of the veranda lady bridget could see an irregular line of grey-brown boulders jagged and evidently of volcanic origin marking the line of gully these gave a touch of romantic wildness to the otherwise peaceful scene lady bridget's gaze went along the track skirting the gidia scrub and crossing the lower end of the gully near the lagoon to the great plain which spread in front of the head station. Except for some green trees by the lagoon, a few ragged belts of gum and sandalwood, or single isolated trees dotted about, the plain was unwooded to the horizon. There were also, silhouetted upon the sky, the grotesque-looking sails of one or two windmill pumps. In the foreground the plain was intersected by lines of grey fencing, within which browsed straggling herds of lean cattle, mostly along the curve of the lagoon. Neither plain nor lagoon formed altogether pleasing objects of contemplation just now, for they spoke eloquently of the threatened drought. When Lady Bridget had come up a bride, the plain had been fairly green. The sandalwood blossoms were out, and wildflowers plentiful. The lagoon was then flush with the grass, and its water on which white, pink and blue lilies floated had reflected the vegetation at its edge. Now the lagoon had shrunk, and the water in the gully was in places a mere trickle. Of course, the trees were there, tea-tree, flooded gum, and so forth, but they looked brown and ragged. 
one standing by itself a giant white cedar which in spring was a mass of white and mauve bloom and in winter of scarlet berries had a wide strip of brown mud between it and the water that had formerly laved its roots lady bridget had thought that the rocky gully the lagoon and the vast plain made as pretty a landscape as she had ever seen when she had first looked upon it in the early morn after her homecoming now as she paced up and down the veranda for she was in a restless mood her mind went back to that bridal homecoming they had not arrived at the head station till after dusk but it had been visible from the plain a long way off and she had examined it with ardent curiosity through her field glasses in the clear light of sunset she had seen a collection of rough buildings backed by the forest and from different points of view as they drew nearer had made out that the three principal ones formed three sides of a square two of these the side wings were old and of primitive construction slab walls bark roofs and low verandas overgrown with creepers colin explained that these were the old humpy as he called the original dwelling house and the kitchen and store building opposite lately the new house had been put up at right angles with the old buildings and fronting the plain it had begun before his trip south and practically finished during his absence colin was very proud of the new house it was made of sawn wood and had a high-pitched roof of corrugated zinc turned to gold by the sunset rays upon it there was a deep veranda all round the new house and it was much taller than the wings being raised on the bloodwood piles that had been kept tarred to keep off white ants and with a flight of wooden steps leading up to the veranda the details of mungar head station became familiar enough later to its new mistress besides the dwelling houses were various huts and outbuildings the stockyards lay on a piece of level ground behind at the side of the gully and between the yards and the house stood a small slab and bark cottage the bachelor's quarters even though glorified by the sunset it had given lady bridget a little shock to see how crude and architecturally speaking unlovely was her new home but her celtic imagination was stirred by the weirdness of the grey-green gum forest and of the mournful gidea scrub framing the picture then as dusk crept closer and the great plain along which the tired horses plodded became one illimitable shadow out of which rose strange sounds of beasts and eerie night cries of birds the spell of the wilderness renewed itself and she felt herself enveloped in world-old mystery she remembered how the lights of the head station against the forest blackness had looked like welcoming torches and how she had roused herself out of her weariness at the last spurt of the equally weary buggy horses then the jolt in the dark over the slip-rails the slow strains of the wheels up the hill the cracking of Mungar Bill's stock-whip, and the sound of long-drawn cooees. Also, of dogs barking, of men running forward. Then how Colin had lifted her down and half-carried her into the parlour. She remembered her dazed glance round, and the rushing thought of how she could soften its ugliness. Yet it had looked welcoming, a log-fire blazing, the table spread, a Chinese cook in baggy blue garments, pigtail flowing, a Malay boy, her bewildered question was there no woman in the establishment then colin's strident call from the veranda mrs henser where's mrs henser and the appearance presently of florrie henser youngish tall a full figure black hair frizzed and puffed a showy face red cheeks redder lips rather sullen flushing dark eyes who had received lady bridget almost as if she had been her equal 
and of whom the bride had at once made an enemy by her frigidly haughty response. From the first moment Lady Bridget had disliked Mrs. Hensor, but she had felt a vague attraction towards the little yellow-headed, blue-eyed boy clinging to Mrs. Hensor's skirts. As for any uneasiness on the score of Steadbolt's insolent insinuations, she had absolutely dismissed that from her mind. Yes, that bridal homecoming, how strange it had seemed! How rough everything was! How impossible the whole thing would have appeared to her had any fortune-teller in Bond Street prophesied the end of her marriage journey! And how, in the first moment of settling down, she had laughed with Colin at the thought of what Chris and Molly Gaverick and Eliza Countess would have said! But with what dauntless energy she had worked in transforming her new abode, and in making it reflect her own personality. She had felt really grateful, she said, to the union delegates, for having enticed away the builders before the inside furnishings were complete. Soon they got hold of a bush carpenter, and she was provided with occupation for a good many months. Lady Bridget had been very happy in those early days. Colin had seemed so thoroughly in the picture, strong, chivalrous, adoring, like a Viking worshipping his conquered bride. The romance of it all appealed tremendously to the Celtic blood in Bridget. It was her nature, when she gave, to give generously. She had become genuinely in love with her bush husband during that wonderful honeymoon journey. Ah, that journey! What an experience! If she could have written it down as a new adventure of the Lady of Quality, how the great Gibbs would have jumped at her copy! Well, she had practically done so in her letters to Joan Gildea, now back in her London flat. But the true inwardness of the adventure was a thing never to be put into words. No sign yet of the men. Lady Bridget ceased her restless pacing and swung herself slowly to and fro in a hammock at the end of the veranda. As she swung, she traversed over again in her imagination the stages of that honeymoon journey. Two hundred and twenty-five miles of it, after the first camp-out. Many more nights under the stars. Then out of the gum forests they had gone through the great western plains, covering ground fairly easily, for McKeith had arranged to have fresh horses on the road, and they always drove a spare pair ahead of the buggy. Occasionally they stopped at a head station. Once at night they pulled up at a bush house, and a strange old man had put his head out of a window and shouted to them in the darkness. "'If you've come to see me, I'm drunk,' he had said. "'And if you've come to drink, the rum keg's empty.' but you'll find a pint pot outside and a little water in the tank. And then he had shut the window again and refused further parley. They had camped, hungry, in the paddock, for provisions had run out, and on that account, and because the horses had strayed in the night, they had to go again to the house. The old man, sober and ashamed, captivated likewise by Lady Bridget's beauty and charm, apologised almost on his knees, he made Biddy think of Thackeray's picture of Sir Pitt Crawley proposing to Becky Sharp. Old Mr. Duppo it was, the father of Zack Duppo, the horse-breaker, who had recently been breaking in colts at Mungar. They stayed till the horses were found. Mr. Duppo had a housekeeper. Now if Mrs. Hensor had been like that housekeeper, there could have been no cause for jealous scandal. An aged dame, long, bony, dressed in a short green petticoat and tartan jacket, with a little check shawl over her head, and pinned under a bearded chin. She poured tea out of a tin teapot, and leaned over her master's chair at mealtimes to carve the salt beef. Lady Bridget sketched the pair. The old man roared over the sketch, 
but the housekeeper bore her a grudge for it and afterwards had not a good word for the ladyship who had slipped out of her proper sphere into the never-never country there were plenty of other small adventures which would have made the hair of lady gaverick and her friends stand on end a dream drive indeed full of sort of alice in wonderland episodes bush life out back a jumble of odd characters and situations fences camps cattle drivers camps bullock dray camps there had been a baby born unexpectedly under the tilt of a bullock dray on one occasion the night before mckith's party appeared on the scene and lady bridget had a trunk down from the buggy and there in the road tore up some of her fine laced smocks and petticoats to provide swaddling clothes for the poor little scrap of mortality and there were tramps humpy bluey on the track likewise and diggers carrying their picks bridget liked seeing colin hail fellow well met with them all sharing tucker and quart-pot tea she wished that her socialistic friends of the old played-out civilization could see this shrewd practical humanitarian of the bush they came very close to each other in those long days of the dream drive he talked to her as he had never talked before and as he talked rarely afterwards he drew aside curtains from recesses of his real nature the existence of which she had not suspected and in truth at a later time doubted then if in broad sunlight the shy rough exterior of the man would close suddenly over those secret chambers when evening came it would seem as though the campfire illuminated them once more after the first time or two he allowed her to boss the camp layout it was she who spread the blankets on wombo's beds of grass treetops and dry herbage wombo and the big fellow white mary the adjective used metaphorically as expressive of distinction made great friends in those days out of which friendship sprang alas in due time certain tragic happenings it was lady bridget who would set the billy boiling and who after one or two failures succeeded in making excellent johnny cakes she remembered her first performance in that line under the eyes of a small group of admiring spectators her husband just waiting to see how the new chum cooked shape and as he said the words she glancing up from the sheet of bark and the dough she was kneading caught a look in his face which was something she could never in all her life forget and mungar bill with the horse's reins over his arm and the two black boys agape beady eyes twinkling white teeth glistening emitting their queer guttural clicks of approbation and an occasional my word budgery you lathy chap the nearest they could get to mungar bill's accepted form of address there was joy glory to lady bridget in this playing of the score and fending for her man ceasing to be the goddess and becoming the primal woman and the sports and songs and stories from the campfire mungar bill's yarns colin's exploring tales wombo's and cudgie's dances and corroboree tunes strange weird music that had a fascination for lady bridget she too would get up and sing carmen's famous air and the Neapolitan peasant songs of her mother's youth. Never for sure had the gaunt gum trees echoed back such strains as these. But time came when all the romance of barbarism seemed to have fizzled out, and only cruel realities remained, when work and worry turned McKeith from the worshipping lover into the rough-tongued, irritable bushman, when his hands deserted him, his cattle died, and things generally went wrong and when he showed himself something of the hard-headed, parsimonious, ill-conditioned Scotch mongrel that Steadbolt had called him. When, indeed, he seemed to have forgotten that Lady Bridget had graciously permitted him to worship her, 
but had not bargained for being treated well as many other outback squatter treats his helpmate then bridget would tell herself bitterly that it might have been better had she married a civilized gentleman there would sometimes be scenes and sometimes sulks and those times no doubt accounted for the hungry look in lady bridget's eyes and the slight hardening of her mouth she was loyal though in spite of her many faults and game in her own way and when colin came out of his dour moods she was generally ready to meet him halfway for through all the memory of the dream drive honeymoon lingered and the bit of bark sapless brown curled up by the heat into almost a tube and partially eaten by white ants before the desecrating assault had been discovered and the termites nest destroyed with boiling water was still cherished as a sacred symbol while she swung in the hammock the memory pictures came and went like a cinematograph show the dream drive presently merging into an electioneering trip through mckeith's constituency a few weeks after her bridal homecoming the lady of quality might had she been so minded have also made spicy capital out of the humours of that political contest in which unhappily the labour party had triumphed steadbolt had had his say on the occasion and there had been a free fight lady bridget was not present and only heard darkly of the occurrence when steadbolt had got the worst of it in an encounter with his late employer but all that was but a small side-show and not likely to affect in any great measure lady bridget's life except that the loss of mckeith's seat in the legislative assembly made it no longer necessary for him to spend at least part of the winter session in leichardt's town nor would lady bridget have the opportunity to resume her old intimacy at government house in any case however she was not destined to see more of her old friend in australia a few months previously lady tallant had developed symptoms of grave disease it was said that the leichardt's land climate did not agree with her and she had gone back to england leaving Sir Luke to perform his duties without her help. End of Book 2, Chapter 8